Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Mentioned to you that last Sunday, when we gathered together virtually uh, via video, streaming through the internet, uh, whether it was through our church's Roku app or through our Apple or Android app, through YouTube or through Facebook Live or through the Calvary.com archive, uh, through our podcast channel, through nateholdridge.com or through calvary.com forward slash live, uh, we had around 1,500 views or streams of our service last Sunday. And many of those streams represented groups of people that were gathered together taking in the service together. And the reason that I mention that is so that you can feel a little less alone in this experience today, knowing that we are gathering together with many other brothers and sisters uh, throughout the community. And as you're sitting at your home today, uh, many others are doing the same thing. And together we gather, and for that, uh, we rejoice. I did want to mention that this Tuesday night at 6.15, uh, we're going to restart our Tuesday night church service. Of course, we cannot gather here physically in the sanctuary, but we'll continue in our study in the book of Genesis via live stream and also on demand. So that'll start Tuesday night at 6.15. And uh, this week we're going to be looking at uh, life after the flood from Genesis chapter 9 uh, and following. So I look forward to getting into that uh, with you. And if you haven't been following with us in the book of Genesis, please uh, go ahead and check out the archive of the various messages in Genesis so far. Uh, today, though, before we continue in the book of Mark, I just want to encourage you. You know, I believe that God is at work in the middle of this wild season that we're in. And many of you have told me or told us as pastors uh, that that's exactly what's happening, that God is on the move. I believe that God is refining us, that he's refreshing us, and that he's reworking us for his honor and glory. You know, they're pressing days that we're in. These are stressful days that we're in, but they are also exciting and useful days. I think that God is doing his best work in us right now. You know, the shepherd's psalm, Psalm 23, it says it like this, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And we, we must remember that at this season of our lives. God is with us. He is especially with us in the midst of the trials that we're facing. And what I want you to know is that he's not taking us to the valley of the shadow of death, but he's taking us through the valley of the shadow of death. He has, in other words, a destination in mind for us as his people. He's bringing us to the tablelands, the pastures that is our good shepherd he has for us. So even though right now it might feel that he's brought us to the valley, let's remember that he's bringing us actually through the valley. And it's as he does that, that we can get closer to him as he interacts with us and gets us where he wants us to be. So let's trust our good shepherd uh, in this season. Okay, 
That's my introduction today, but let's open up to Mark chapter 2 as we continue in our study in God's Word. Today we're going to look at Mark chapter 2, verse 23 uh, and following. Let me say a brief prayer before we jump into this passage. Lord, we do pray that you would especially strengthen, Lord, those who very much feel that way, Lord, that they are walking through the valley of the shadow of death right now. Thank you, Lord, for being our good shepherd. Please stand with us. Get us through, Lord, to the tablelands that you have prepared for us, even if all that is is increased Christ-likeness. Lord, would you do that in our lives? Would you use this difficulty to produce more of Jesus in us? Thank you, Lord, for your word. And we pray as we continue through Mark's gospel that you would teach us and speak to us from it. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Okay, as we continue our study through the gospel of Mark, it's becoming evident that Jesus' way is far different than the way of the religious leaders that existed during his day. He came and offered forgiveness, we saw, to the paralyzed man. He came and called Matthew, the tax collector, to be part of his ministry team and then ate with him in his house with other tax collectors and sinners. Uh, He didn't fast, but feasted with his disciples. And in each one of those episodes, uh, there was a stark contrast between Jesus and the religious leaders of that time. Now today, we're going to come to the fourth consecutive episode where Jesus's way of doing things collides with the religionists of his time. Okay, they had cultivated a harsh and legalistic uh, environment in the people of Israel. You know, for them, the Pharisees and people like them, Holiness equated to drudgery and agony. They knew nothing about the joy of the Lord. But enter Jesus. And what Jesus introduced was an atmosphere of grace. Now, this atmosphere of grace was always God's intention all the way back from the Garden of Eden. And the inbreaking of God's kingdom through Jesus makes this atmosphere of grace all the more possible for us today. For us, as believers, holiness can mix with gladness. Obedience can dovetail with love. And we can live in the joy of the Lord. In other words, it's beautiful, it's joyful to follow after Jesus. We can live in Jesus's atmosphere of grace. Okay, so today, from this little episode, I wanna show you three ways that Jesus creates such an atmosphere. Okay, so let's start out by reading the passage and seeing the setting of this episode. It says in verse 23, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. That's Jesus traveling through the grain fields with his disciples. And it says, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Okay, this is the first mention of the Sabbath in the book of Mark. And I'm sure that 
Many of you are familiar with what the Sabbath was like in ancient Israel, but let me talk about it for a moment today. Every week in ancient Israel, from sunset Friday to sunset on Saturday, the people of Israel were supposed to honor God by refraining from work and by keeping specific requirements as they refrained from work. It was a significant part of their identity as God's people. It was even included in the Ten Commandments. It was the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Look at it on the screen. It says in Exodus 20, verse 8 through 10, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Now, as you read through the book of Exodus, what you discover is that the Sabbath day was meant to be a day of solemn rest that was holy to the Lord. So it was dedicated to God. It was for everybody, you also learn in Exodus. Rich people, poor people, male or female, young and old, Israelite, or even foreigner who was living in Israel at the time, all of them were supposed to rest. God even said that their animals, their beasts of burden, like oxen or donkeys, they also were to get a day off, a day of rest, every single Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. God intended the day as a time of refreshment for his people. Okay, it was a 24-hour period of time, but because it started at sundown and ended at sundown, it probably felt a little bit more like a 36-hour period of time because once the sun went down on Saturday, they could then start cooking meals and be together and prepare for the following day. And so it wasn't until Sunday morning that many of them would begin to work so that they, they, they would recharge during this time. They would refresh during this time and they would reflect on God. You know, there were no chores, there was no, uh, no errands, no housework, no homework, no home renovations, no travel baseball, you know, none of it. They were just together for a full day each week. A kind of like a sheltering in place, if you will, every single week from Friday at sundown until Sunday morning, but uh, without the pressure that many of us feel during sheltering in place of working from our homes or getting things done or trying to be productive. Okay, on this particular Sabbath, Jesus was walking through the grain fields, going through the grain fields with his disciples. And his disciples, they started to pluck heads of grain. Okay, what you should know is this was perfectly legal in that culture. You're not allowed to do this in our culture, but they could do that in their culture. God had said in Deuteronomy 23, 25, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So, so in other words, they were allowed to walk through a field, and as they're walking through the field, as they're traveling through the field, eat just enough for their sustenance as they traveled, but they couldn't bust out a sickle and a sack and start loading it up, taking a little mini harvest for themselves uh, and their families. Okay, so when the Pharisees come out, and, and I always imagine these guys like popping out from behind a bush, when these Pharisees come out and say, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Uh, they weren't saying that because they were accusing the disciples of theft. They weren't. No, what they were accusing the disciples of was working on the Sabbath. 
You see, by the time Jesus came around, the religionists had developed the Sabbath law into a complex set of rules. The Old Testament, you know, it kept it pretty straightforward, pretty simple. It it basically meant don't work, uh, don't build a fire, rest, and be refreshed every seventh day. Okay, but humans, what we are is we're legalistic by nature. So people began asking the rabbis uh, to break it down into more minute answers to their questions. You know, what is work? And what is rest? And what are we allowed to get away with? How far can we go? What can we do on the Sabbath? Okay, so the the rabbis ended up giving all kinds of rules on top of the Sabbath law, which made the Sabbath or turned the Sabbath into a cumbersome day. Let me give you some examples. One is is that they, they said, you're not allowed to write more than one letter or sew more than one stitch on the Sabbath day. I don't know why they thought one was the limit, but that's what they decided. They also said that you couldn't carry a whole orange in your pocket on the Sabbath day, but you were, if you wanted to, allowed to carry half an orange in your pocket, which sounds terrible to me. This is before the days of Ziploc bags. They also made uh, complicated travel restrictions. This is how far you can go. And if there's a house in sight, you're allowed to travel a little further, things like that. They weren't allowed to tie knots on the Sabbath day, but they did allow women to tie girdles on the Sabbath day. So many women would go to the well to draw water and tie a girdle to a rope tied to a bucket in order to get around that particular Sabbath stipulation. If a building fell down on the Sabbath day, they could remove enough of the rubble to figure out if anybody inside the building had been harmed. Uh, If they were harmed but still alive, they were allowed to rescue them from the rubble. But if the person was dead, they had to leave them there until the next day. These were real rules that the rabbis had come up with about the Sabbath. So you can see that they'd made it into a very religious experience, a bit of a burden for the people of God. And one of the rules that they made was regarding the plucking of grain uh, as you walked on the Sabbath. What they determined was that for you to walk through a field and pluck a few heads of grain and pop them into your mouth for some nourishment or sustenance to get some quick carbs in there, They considered that reaping a harvest. (laughs) You were actually out there working the land on the Sabbath. Okay, in a moment, Jesus is going to respond, and we'll see how Jesus responds. But he's not going to correct their understanding of the Sabbath. He's not going to say to them, you don't understand. You know, my disciples are not working. That's just your ridiculous interpretation. Now, to be clear, it was their ridiculous interpretation, but that's not the way that Jesus is going to push back on the Pharisees at this moment. But before we look at how Jesus responds, let's consider for a second the behavior of the disciples. That's what I really want to highlight in this first point. Now, it seems like their relationship with Jesus had set them free from all the traditional constraints of the religionists of their day. You know, they felt comfortable enough with with Jesus to pluck grain on the Sabbath, to do something that they knew that the Pharisees had told the masses was forbidden. 
In other words, what you're seeing in these disciples are men who were free. They were living in the atmosphere of grace that I want to talk to you about today. Jesus had created this atmosphere. They were in relationship with Jesus, and that changed everything. So this is the first point that I want to make to you today. Jesus creates an atmosphere of grace by highlighting relationship over religion. Jesus creates an atmosphere of grace by highlighting relationship over religion. You see, Jesus, he was breaking his disciples free from the constraints of stuffy religion. You know, they had him. They didn't need that religious code any longer. They didn't need the restrictive uh, standards of the legalists. Instead, they could walk and talk with the Lord of the Sabbath. And I think this is a major lesson that a lot of us are learning right now, or maybe relearning right now during this season that we're in, being constricted to our homes and unable to move about as we normally would in our everyday lives. You know, there's times of chaos and upheaval going on right now. It's hard to look at the news without becoming discouraged or overwhelmed and hard. And I would counsel you to take it in measure. Don't let your mind go there too much because you'll quickly become overwhelmed. But a lot of times, these times of chaos and upheaval, they're really good at revealing the health of our relationship with Jesus. In other words, trials, they have a way of exposing if we've drifted from Jesus, if his, if his word is far from us, or if we're rusty at the practice of prayer. But this particular trial that we're in right now, where we're being forced into our homes, separated from each other, I think it has a way of highlighting the importance of our personal relationship with Jesus. You know, in a sense, it's like we can only turn to the Lord. We might use technology to keep in touch with other human beings, but we're alone in our homes. And the, but, but the Lord, in the midst of that, is still present with us. He's close to us. He's, he's, he's in a relationship with us as his people. And he wants us to enjoy our relationship with him during a season like this. And my prayer is that we would let Jesus use this season as a time for personal revival or renewal in each one of our lives. I had this thought actually the day after we were given the order by the county to shelter in place. You know, it's a scary order. And you read through the list of all the things that you can do and can't do and and it's an ominous thing to be thinking about. And that next morning, I woke up and had my normal quiet time reading scripture. And my normal Bible reading happened to bring me to Revelation chapter 2. And there I read Jesus' letter to the church in Ephesus. And he had great things to say to the church in Ephesus. They had great doctrine and they had great works in their life and in their history. But then he said to them, but I have this against you. You have departed from your first love. Therefore, remember from what high state you have fallen and repent, do the deeds you did at the first. And when I read that, I, I knew at least part of God's mission in my life personally through this season where we're far from each other and forced into our homes longer than we'd like to be. 
I just began praying, Lord, I want you to use this time in my life. As I'm sheltering in place and my normal patterns and my normal rhythm is disrupted, as I'm working from home, as all of this is happening, as my life looks different, I want you to bring me back to my first love. I want this to be a time for prayer and reflection and relationship with you. And in a time like this, I I encourage you, press in to Jesus, press in to not religion, but your relationship with him. One of my encouragements would be this. It's so tempting to pass the time away, to fritter the time away with social media or with Netflix or with the news. And these can all be healthy outlets for us or great points of connection or just refreshment as we are entertained. But don't let this season go by without pressing into your relationship with Jesus. Okay, so that's it. That's the accusation of the Pharisees. Let's go on and see how Jesus responds to this accusation that the disciples had broken the Sabbath by eating that grain for themselves. It's in verse 25 and following. Let's read together. And Jesus, or he, said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Okay, many of the Pharisees had probably memorized vast portions of the Torah and other portions of the Old Testament. Okay, they'd actually memorized major sections of Old Testament scripture, if not all of it. That's why I think it's hilarious when Jesus asks them the question, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? They had definitely read it. They had probably even memorized it, but the thing is they'd never understood it. By the way, when Jesus appeals to this story from David's life, Uh, This is a radical departure from the normal way that rabbis during that day would make their arguments. Uh, Many rabbis would make their arguments by appealing to two different Old Testament sources and comparing them together and using both of them to build uh, their ideology or their perspective. Uh, Or another method that they would use would be to quote from the Torah, one of the first five books of the Bible. But Jesus does not quote from the Torah, and he does not quote from two separate passages. He just alludes to one passage outside of the Torah from the life of David in 1 Samuel. Okay, This story from David's life, it came during a time after David killed Goliath, and after David had married King Saul's daughter, and after Saul had grown jealous at the fame of David as it spread throughout Israel. He grew so jealous that he eventually wanted to kill David, and so David had to run for his life. And because he couldn't prepare, he didn't have many supplies as he fled from King Saul. And on his way out into the wilderness, where he would end up spending a long chunk of time with his men, Jesus went to the city of the priests where the tabernacle of Israel resided at that time. And what he did is he went into the city and asked the priests if they had any food for him to eat. And the only bread that was in town at that time 
was this bread, it says in verse 26, called the bread of the presence. Okay, this was the bread that the priests would bring into the tabernacle every day to present before the Lord. And according to the book of Leviticus, when they replaced that bread and put fresh bread in, the old bread that they took out could only be eaten by the priests. Only the priests could eat the old bread of the presence. Now, David was not a priest. So when he ate the bread, he was breaking God's law. Okay, so what is Jesus saying here? Why did he use this story to defend the actions of his disciples? Okay, perhaps... Jesus was demonstrating that there were times when the ceremonial law of God could be broken if it was an aid to human life and flourishing. Okay? In other words, David needed the food in order to live. The only food that was available made him break the ceremonial law of God. So God gave him an exemption in that moment, and he was permitted to eat the, the, the food. You know, I, I wish I could illustrate this to you somehow. You know, if only I could think of like a contemporary modern example of a time when God's people are allowed to break with God's command because their health requires them to do so. I mean, just, just try to imagine this with me. Try to imagine a time uh, where Christians would have to neglect, for instance, gathering together in public settings for the worship of the Lord uh, in order to preserve their health. <laughs> their health depends on it. And they get an exemption from the Lord to be able to do just that. You know, it's amazing to me that we're reading this story uh, on this particular Sunday. So maybe for some of us, God is trying to today give us a little bit of grace during this season where we cannot be together. We, we cannot engage in the fellowship of the saints like we normally would. And so maybe we might be feeling a little guilty about that, meeting in our homes, but maybe the Lord is trying to dispense a little bit of grace to us today by showing us how David even ate the showbread. Okay, but I think that Jesus was doing something uh, even bigger when he appealed to David's story or David's example. Okay, remember, like I said earlier, he's not using their normal methods of making scriptural arguments. No Torah, no multiple quotations. And I wonder if the reason that Jesus is doing that is because he's actually not arguing from quotations, but from personhood. What do I mean by that? Well, here's the thing. They never questioned David. You see, David eventually became the recipient of the messianic promise. There was a day he wanted to build a temple for God, and God said, that's nice that you want to do that for me, but your son will do that for me, but I will build a house for you, David. And when God said that to David, he promised him that from his line would come a forever king who would sit on uh, the throne of Israel forever without end. In other words, a kingdom without end. And because of that promise that God made to David, the religionists of Jesus's day, they venerated David. They did not question David at all. Nobody looked at 1 Samuel 21 and said, why did he do that thing? 
So when David went to the priests and ate God's bread, no one bothered to rebuke him for doing that. In other words, they would have said, he's David. He's favored by God. He's the greatest king we've ever had. He forecasts the Messiah Christ. David can do whatever he wants. He's the greatest of all time. He gets a pass. Now, in another place, Jesus said things like this. He said, something greater than the temple is here. He said, something greater than Jonah is here. And something greater than Solomon is here. So to me, this passage reads something like this. Someone greater than David is here. You never questioned David. You should not question me. I'm greater than David. I'm the forever king who was promised to come from David. Okay, so this leads me to my second point. Number two, Jesus creates an atmosphere of grace because he's the king of this kingdom. He creates an atmosphere of grace because he's the king of this kingdom. You see, Jesus came in Mark 1 verse 15 saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And if King David could break the ceremonial law in order to feed himself and his men, so could Jesus. You know, like David, he was persecuted and rejected by the establishment. And he collected a ragtag group of followers. And also like David, he fed his followers. He fed his disciples. This is not Jesus's way of saying that the Pharisees' interpretation of the law was wrong. Instead, this is his way of claiming authority greater than David. Jesus is the king, the one who would come from David's line. Now, in the book of Daniel, we get an interesting glimpse into what this kingdom is like. There's a king there. His name is Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire. And one day he had a dream about Jesus's kingdom many years before Jesus was ever born. In his dream, the first thing that he saw was a statue. And this statue had a head of gold, a chest of silver, thighs of bronze, uh, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. Then there appeared this stone that was made out of thin air, and it came and struck the feet of this statue. And the whole thing was broken in pieces. Daniel when he interpreted this dream for Nebuchadnezzar, announced that the various metals represented various world powers and kingdoms. But the stone, it represented God's kingdom. Look at what he said. He said, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. That's the kingdom that Jesus brought. In the days when, like ours, you know, days where we're susceptible to pandemics, or days where the stock market goes up and down and is volatile, in days where we're watching our income dissipate, in days where life seems unsteady, we must 
remember the forever kingdom of Jesus. As our king, he is leading us towards an atmosphere of grace, and he can do so because he is the king. Okay, let's wrap it up by looking at the last two verses of this passage. It says in verse 27 and 28, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, I talked about this earlier, but remember, the religionists of Jesus' day, they'd made the Sabbath into a really hard experience. It wasn't something I, I don't think that the people of Israel looked forward to because it was so restrictive. You know, their legalistic eye had changed everything. But, but God, you must remember, had meant for the Sabbath to be a gift for people, especially for poor people who likely without it would have had to work seven days a week in order to survive. So just try to imagine it. Try to imagine the blessing of the Sabbath. You know, there you are on Friday. And you're at work and you're grinding away, but the sun is beginning to set. And busily, you prepare your house. You get a raging fire built. You put dinner on that fire. It's beginning to cook before the Sabbath has begun. Then the sun goes down and everything comes to a grinding halt. Nobody's working. Everybody's in their homes. They're feasting and eating and enjoying each other. Then as the fire begins to fade, you all go to sleep in your home and, and you sleep in and the next day you wake up late. There's no work to do. There's no responsibilities. There's nothing really on your schedule and you spend the day eating and drinking and enjoying each other and worshiping and celebrating God. You're reading and thinking and praying and laughing and playing and enjoying each other's presence. Then as the sun begins to go down again on Saturday night, once it's down, the fires begin to rage again. Food is cooked, meals are prepared, and chores are established to prepare for the coming week that starts tomorrow morning. I mean, it was just a delightful experience, or at least it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a gift from God to people. Can you imagine? One 24-hour period of time every week, where you cannot work, you're, you're just there with your family or friends enjoying life. This is why Jesus said in verse 27 that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. You see, the religionists thought of the Sabbath as a yoke that man was supposed to toil under. You know, a restriction that God had given to them, a religious way to show that they were God's people. But Jesus thought of it as something totally different. He thought of it as something that God had made for humanity, a gift for the pinnacle of his creation, people. And that day of rest, that was a day that was supposed to be made for us, for his people. And this is how we're to understand all of God's laws, by the way. Everything that God commands us to do, it's for our betterment. It's for our health. They're meant to bless us. Every commandment of God is designed with human flourishing in mind. We're at our best when we obey God because God's laws lead to the healthiest imaginable life. John said it like this in 1 John 5, verse 3. His commandments are not burdensome. 
You see, all of his laws have us in mind. So here's how this works, you guys. You, you sit down and you read your Bible. And as you read it, you discover how God wants disciples to do finances or sexuality or church membership or ministry or career or education or friendship or any other thing. Then, as you read those commandments, whether they feel burdensome or feel easy to you, you have to remind yourself that they were created to help you flourish. They are not there to make you suffer. They're there to help you produce the most joyful life and the best version of you. Okay, but Jesus said another thing in verse 28. Notice that he said, so the son of man, that's him. He said, so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, one reason that he knows that the Sabbath is made for man is that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. What does it mean that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, though? That's not normally the title that we give Jesus. Oh, Jesus, I love you, the Son of God, the Savior, and the Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean? Well, to answer that question, let me remind you that the Sabbath, it actually did not start with the nation of Israel. It started with creation. Those of you who have come on Tuesday nights, you know that uh, from Genesis chapter 2. After the six days of creation... God rested or ceased to work on the seventh day. Then he blessed the seventh day, and he made the seventh day holy for his people. Okay, see, for, for, now, now for God, the Sabbath was not a day to recuperate, right? We know that. It's not like God was pooped after the six days of creation and thought to himself, man, I need a break. No, that's not it at all. The idea of God resting or ceasing from his work is the idea that he entered into enjoyment of what he made. He wanted to enjoy his creation. He wanted to enjoy his people, and he wanted his people to enjoy him. Okay, even ancient Israel recognized this uh, and, and, and saw that connection with creation to their Sabbath system that they engaged in. In the Ten Commandments, after giving the commandment about the Sabbath, God said, for in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What Jesus is announcing here is that as God, he was involved in setting aside the seventh day from the very beginning. It was a rule that he made as the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath, along with the rule that Adam must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was there for Adam's blessing. Jesus made the garden, and Jesus made the rules which govern the garden for the betterment of his people, including the Sabbath rule. Which leads me to my last point today. Number three, Jesus creates an atmosphere of grace, which was his original intention. Jesus creates an atmosphere of grace which was his original intention. You see, the Lord of the Sabbath has come. Jesus could remember what he intended for the Sabbath all the way back in creation. He intended that we would walk and talk with and enjoy him in the cool of the day. He knew that the original intention for the Sabbath was that humanity would live in the enjoyment of God. 
He knew that we were called to live in this atmosphere of grace perpetually. And Jesus came to earth and will come again to the earth in order to draw people into that kingdom, into that atmosphere of grace. He wants us to enjoy him, to walk with him, to experience him. He hates seeing religiosity pollute our simple relationship with him. So let's let us pull him into, or maybe back into, the joy of the Lord, the joy of his presence. Okay, as we close, I want to read to you from Colossians chapter 2, a passage that is so appropriate for this text. Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings? These, all the do-nots, have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value, no help, in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What does all of that say? Well, it says that religion cannot make you whole. Religion cannot stop the raging sinful desires within. Instead, we must hold fast to the head. That's Jesus, from whom we all grow with a growth that is from God. We must walk with Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, and the garden that he's created for us enjoying him and allowing him to transform us into his image. Okay, as I close, let me give to you some concluding applications, church. Number one, I would say it like this. Find ways to use this very unique time to press in to your relationship with Jesus. You know, as I said earlier, don't let this time where we're sheltered in go by without pressing in to Christ. This is a great opportunity. Life is different. For many of us, life has slowed down in a very measurable way. And so I pray and ask, would you spend that time with the Lord? Number two, set your hope on the kingdom that never ends. You know, one of the things I hope we're all learning through this experience is the fragility of the kingdoms, the nations, the societies, the cultures of this world. We're not as strong as we sometimes think that we are, but let's set our hope upon the kingdom that never ends, Jesus's kingdom. Number three, stop trusting self-discipline. You know, I, I can do it on my own. I can discipline myself. Stop trusting self-discipline and commandment keeping as means to make you into a good person. No, you've got to pursue the Lord, trust him. He will transform and change you from the inside out. And number four, I would say it like this, uniquely for this season that we're in, create an atmosphere of grace 
in your home during this very unique season that we're in. And some of us are single and we're alone. And for those of you who are single and alone, I'm praying for you. It's a very difficult thing that you're going through, I'm sure. And I pray that many are reaching out to you, loving on you in the midst of this time, that you're banding together through the technology at your disposal. But for those of you who are in a family where your children are still in the home, I pray that you would create an atmosphere of grace during this season, not a hostile atmosphere, a legalistic atmosphere, but a grace atmosphere during this season. Again, church, like I said last week, I I love you so much, and I'm going to close again with the words of the Apostle John from 2 John, verse 12. Though I have much to write to you, he says, or I have much to say to you, I would rather not use paper and ink, he wrote, and I would say I would rather not use streaming video or audio. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray for our whole church family that you would strengthen us during this very unique season. Bless us, we pray. And Lord, we ask that you would drive this virus from our nation, from our county, and from this world. We thank you, Lord, and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. See you on Tuesday night, church. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.